number 571. I'm going to bring our reading from Psalm 88. If you're visiting or you've been away for a little while, we've uh, been looking at the Psalms as our theme for this term. All human life, emotion, experience expressed, I think, through the Psalms. We've had Psalms of praise and uh, joy, of intimacy. This is, I ought to warn you ahead of the reading, a psalm of lament, of considerable lament. I'm just glad the sun is shining outside. England haven't yet lost the first test. Psalm 88. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart from the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me, You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You've taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's just have a moment or two to flick through that psalm, just uh, to read it to ourselves, to allow it to just go beneath the surface as we trust that it is part of the canon of Scripture. God intends for this psalm to be in the Bible. Psalm 88, one of a collection of psalms that are known as psalms or songs of lament. This is very much 
a psalm of lament. Um, Derek Kidner, a leading commentator on the psalms, describes this as the most gloomy of psalms, one of the saddest psalms in the Psalter. And uh, as I read it and as you reread it, you may have noticed it contains no verse or uh, declaration of praise. There's no declaration of trust expressed here in God. There's only one petition in verse 2. May my prayer come before you. Turn your eye to my cry. Turn your ear to my cry. And the stress, it would seem, is all the more acute on the part of the psalmist because it seems that he attributes his despair, his despondency to God himself. Verse 16, for example, your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. It seems, according to the psalmist, that God is the cause or that source of his feeling of despondency and uh, isolation and dislocation. There's no mention of enemies. Unlike uh, many of the other psalms of lament that have a, a, a sort of minor chord about them, uh, an air of despondency, and yet it's normally attributable to enemies or to some other situation or circumstance. David himself lamented through the psalms, but usually as he, as he was on the run or being pursued by enemies. Um, and uh, often in the other psalms of lament that maybe mark this one out as unique, there is a sort of turning point. There's an outpouring of anguish and grief, and when sort of the psalmist is spent of that. There's almost a sort of sigh. And then a, yet will I turn. Yet will I look to you. Yet will I praise. But no hint of that here. It is indeed a gloomy psalm. And uh, it's caused the sort of commentators to work hard at, uh, at how we might receive it and understand it. Why is it that we've chosen this psalm today as part of our series? Why highlight this one? Some commentators have wondered whether... Uh, for this theory, which I think carries a fair amount of weight, that this psalm was one of a number of psalms that would have been recited as part of a sort of two or three day festival for the people of Israel as they gathered together to rehearse the sort of their stories and how they understood them, themselves in relation to God, and particularly how they understood that relation to, relationship to be worked out. And this psalm comes at the sort of very bottom of, of a sort of, of a, you know, a kind of U-shape in the, in the relationship. And it would have been recited at uh, a communal atonement ritual. Let me unpack what these commentators are, are saying, just very briefly. That as the people gathered and remembered that it was God who held them in covenant faithfulness, they were in a sense reminding themselves of what it would be if they stood outside of that covenant relationship. And apparently what they would do is uh, within the camp or, or the city or where, wherever they were gathered, outside of the boundary of that camp or city, they would dig a deep pit. And then a representative member of the body, it may even have been the king, but perhaps more likely a leading priest, but some leading figure in the community would have been ostracized by way of enactment, would have been ostracized out of the community and placed in the pit overnight, lowered in the pit, until the, 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 the warmth of the day recites and the evening chill comes and darkness falls and the lone cries of one or two wild animals round about fill that person in the pit with a sense of isolation, a sense of being cut off, a sense of darkness and oppression to symbolize what it would be 
for the people of Israel or any of those individuals if they were to remove themselves from God's presence and from relationship with him. Uh, this is what it will feel like. And it was almost as a, a sort of reminder, a covenant reminder, you know, stay in contact with God. Stay in contact with one another as a worshiping community with God because this is what it feels like to be cut off from him. And, and as this drama is being acted out, this psalm would have been, it is posited, would have been recited. Um, some commentators poo-poo that theory. I think there's something in it. If you look at verses 6 to 8, you've put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You've overwhelmed me with all your waves. You've taken away from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. Does it sound familiar? If we just leap ahead as Christians now post Christ to this sense of isolation, of being cut off from friends and cut off from God, darkness, does that remind us of anyone in particular? I think uh, other commentators, and probably, um, if I'm honest, to the, to the research and scholarship, uh, the majority opinion is that this is just a, a good old, honest, personal lament. Someone in the depths of depression and despair. And as such, I think it's therefore vital that we recognize it's part of the canon of Scripture, it's part of the Psalter, amid all the psalms of praise and exaltation. Here is one that is just bleakly honest about uh, life's realities. Places which many of us will have visited and some of us, maybe even some of us here, feel we almost permanently live in. Of bleakness, of distance and isolation where God seems so removed and almost as if he is to blame. He's the cause of the way in which we feel. Overwhelmed, set apart, more dead than alive. Now I want to point something out. It's in what is known as the title of the psalm. Under Psalm 88, the bit in italics there, a song a psalm of the sons of Korah. Uh, the sons of Korah were descendants of Korah who David appointed to be like a sort of um, temple choir. And they were the ones who would, would chant or sing or lead the singing, a little bit like, um, I mean, we might say Ang Harad and Sarah today were the sort of sons of Korah, uh, our kind of uh, music leaders. Then notice this next line, for the director of music. Uh, and then just on a maskil. A maskil is... Um, we're not quite sure what a masculine is, but we think it's a sort of a wise collection of sayings or a wise song. Um, so a type of song. But for the director of music, according to Mahalath, whatever that is, it's, I think that's just a type of tune or meter. In other words, this psalm was meant to be chanted or sung out corporately, publicly. It, well, it isn't just a private lament for the individual sufferer just to keep to himself or herself over there. This, these words were put together in order to be expressed corporately, publicly. In other words, 
Psalm 88, as read out and received corporately, belongs in the Bible. And even though it's um, difficult maybe to read and to encounter, difficult to engage with, there it is. And we are called, as Christians, receiving the whole of God's Scripture. We're called to receive this, to wear it, if you like, and to take it seriously, to wrestle with it and its message. There is a place in the Christian community for lament, for the expression of disappointment, for the the expression of despair. It's almost as if, as psychologists I'm sure will concur, God knows that it's good for us every now and then just to vent these things, to give them expression within a loving covenant community. Now, I don't want to go over the ground. Uh, Johnny excellently covered, I think, middle of June when he spoke on Psalm 22. And if you missed that talk, you can download it on the website uh, and listen to it again. Johnny spoke excellently on on dealing with uh, disappointment. And I I don't want to uh, sort of go over his ground other than to recognize that for all of us at some stage, there is a, a kind of unsatisfied longing, an unmet longing Uh, just as we walk in the kind of dislocation of the world in which we live, this this broken, troubled world, as David reflected in our prayers earlier, a longing for for healing, psychological, sociological, physical healing and wholeness, what the Hebrews knew as shalom, oneness, connectedness. And from time to time, either in our own lives or in the lives of others, we'll know that dislocation, and with it a sense of longing, that the the breaks and the ruptures would be repaired, or a longing for relationships to be healed, a righting of wrongs and a sense of justice to prevail. Just depressive stages, bleak, black moments, periods, maybe months, even years, that many of us, if we haven't experienced personally ourselves, will know others who are are living life, walking in that way. And here is a psalm that wants to acknowledge that, to be real about that, to express it and allow it to be expressed. Psalm 88, for all its difficulties and other psalms of lament like it, it's important that it's part of our canon of scripture. It's important that it's part of our corporate expression. I don't know about you, but I was sort of formed and schooled in, in, in Christian ways through my teenage years, and essentially the spirituality within, within which I was formed, and I've, I've kind of found my home, if I'm, I'm honest, is one that would basically see the glass as half full, uh, backed up by you know, many of the sort of themes and sweeps of Scripture that, that actually you and God are a winning combination. I remember one of the very first verses I learned by heart, I can do all things in Christ who gives me strength, Philippians 4.13. And it's just kind of, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And there's something, if one's not careful, of a sort of triumphal and his zeal that lurks behind verses like that. I sort of blast through life, leaving some kind of wake behind me, sort of trail of debris and so on. On I go. And uh, this psalm is, uh, I think, a healthy corrective to that from time to time. It belongs in the canon of Scripture. I remember, um, I wasn't actually there, but I I, I 
soon learned about it and picked it up. When I joined the staff at St. Paul's Hammersmith, uh, just up the road there, it was about two years after uh, the life of that church had been significantly relaunched by a plant from Holy Trinity Brompton. About 150 uh, people went to re-energize that church, which was just about to be closed, I think. Uh, There were some 20 or so in the congregation, huge barn of a building. And uh, uh, as a sort of vision for the kingdom, Holy Trinity planted under Simon Downham's leadership this core team. And the Bishop of London came and spoke at Simon's licensing. And amid huge excitement uh, and much anticipation at all the ministry that was going to unfold in that surrounding area, uh, a wonderful sort of positive, buzzy feel. But the Bishop said this in his address by way of a charge to Simon and the team. He said, you people of this congregation at St. Paul's, you are to immerse yourself in the pain of the local community. Actually, I look out, I can see there's one or two people who were members of St. Paul's. I don't know whether you were there at the time and remember that, but it certainly has trickled down. Um, I arrived about two years later and it was, it was a phrase that was still sort of hanging in the air. Amid all the excitement, the charge to immerse yourself in the pain of the local community. And he might have had, the bishop might have had a psalm like this or other psalms like it uh, close to his heart as he encouraged the sort of, you know, the young kind of calves raring to break free from the stall at St. Paul's to just take time to walk, maybe crawl, maybe just sit or lie with the pain and the anguish and the depression that's is all around us, actually, in this city of ours, and certainly around uh, the hub of Hammersmith. It's part of our Christian duty, actually. It's part of our Christian pain, a privilege to walk with the pain and to recognize it and to associate ourselves with it because thereby we follow Christ who came and associated with the outcasts and the lonely and the lost, and himself became dislocated and cut off. Himself knew bleakness and blackness. Himself knew something of the wrath of God laid on him. And if we associate with Christ, we're called to associate with his experiences and with those whom he associated, with people for whom this Psalm 88 is a very real cry from the heart. Just mentioning um, Holy Trinity Brompton, I noticed from there they have a week away uh, called Focus. And uh, I'm very encouraged, actually. I'm not sure whether this would have been the case 10 years ago or so, but they have a teaching week. It's coming up at the end of July. And uh, various seminars and teaching and so on. There's a whole seminar stream the whole week through entitled Encountering Life's Difficulties, uh, dealing with bereavement, dealing with uh, addictive behavioral patterns, family fallouts, how to deal with depression, uh, how to live with financial uncertainty, and uh, this one just for the women I noticed, but how to deal with the emptiness, the menopause, and caring for aging parents. Recognizing that amid, I mean, there's many things on uh, just some fantastic uh, seminars and much celebration too, but recognizing that life has its pains, its difficulties, its challenges, its trials, 
And how can we equip ourselves in them and equip ourselves to walk with others in that pain and in that reality? So Psalms of Lament in general, and this psalm in particular, it has a place in the canon of Scripture. But is it entirely hopeless? Is it entirely hopeless? Although it's bleak, the saddest psalm in the Psalter, according to Derek Kidner, but is it entirely hopeless? I wonder. Look at verse 1 with me. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. Day and night the psalmist cries out. Look at uh, verse 9, the second bit. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13. I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. There's something of a persistence to the psalmist's cry. Day and night, every day, in the morning. All the way through the psalm, he addresses the Lord. And all the way through the psalm, it seems, he will persevere and persist in calling and crying out to the Lord. Why? If he's uh, more associated with the grave and with death than with life, if he feels himself to be more dead than alive, why? Why does he keep crying out to God? Why does he persist in his prayer? I want to suggest two things, little seeds of hope maybe sown in here in this psalm and seeds of hope for us if we find ourselves relating resonating with the theme of this psalm of of disappointment, of despair, of depression. Verse 1 and the first bit. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Or in other translations, you are the God of my salvation. A recognition right at the start that all that is of the psalmist is wrapped up in the Lord. His very life, his salvation is sourced and rooted in God. Lord, you are the God who saves me. You are the God who saves me. Big echoes here to that uh, extraordinary character just a few pages earlier recounted in Job and the story of Job's life. Uh, I don't know if you know, but we have an insight in chapter one of Job this character who uh, uh, the Lord takes virtually everything from him, his family, his livelihood, his house, um, in order actually that the Lord can demonstrate to Satan, the enemy, that Job does not rely on those things for his life and sustenance. He, he is reliant on relationship with God. And so God removes all these different scaffolds and props in order to demonstrate that. But in the bleakest moment of Job's life, not unlike the psalmist here, there's this extraordinary phrase, though he, referring to God, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. In other words, I I only know God as the source of everything. If everything else is taken away, I still have the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Similar here to the psalmist in verse 1. Lord, you 
other God that saves me. Take away anything else. If everything else is as death, yet you are still there to save me. In the bleakest moments, in the darkest times, oh God, oh God. I want to suggest that when you cannot pray as you ought, you ought to pray as you can. Two words, oh God, amen. That is a prayer. That is a prayer in the darkest times, in the bleakest times. Oh God, implicit, oh God, who saves me? Oh God, who can turn things around? Oh God, who can make things new? Oh God, who brings life out of death? Oh God, it's a valid prayer. Actually, it's a beautiful prayer. It centers oneself, whatever may be going on, it centers oneself again on the God who saves me. I wonder if that's how he can persist in his prayer. Sure, if of nothing else, that God is the one who will save him. But secondly, and this I think is implicit from the psalm, and we're helped here, I think, by the wider canon of Scripture, the second reason why I think the psalmist can persist in prayer is because he knows, as we know as we study Scripture, that the present order of things is not the final order of things. The present order of things is not the final order of things. We stood and declared earlier our faith in the communion of saints. I believe, part of the creed, in the communion of saints. In other words, the, the fellowship of believers, us, this, what we're doing now. And when we meet in our midweek groups and share our lives one with another. I often think that sometimes that's like um, uh, runners, uh, marathon runners, with an incredibly long and arduous race. And how tiring it is for a runner who breaks free and, and leads from the front on their own to set the pace and to keep going. Because from time to time over 26 miles, you'll just be tempted to feel a little bit weary. You might, some other runners may get a sort of second wind just as you're feeling weary. How encouraging to run in a pack. You're just feeling a little bit weary and to have one or two people running alongside you, maybe just urging out of the corner of the mouth, come on, keep going, keep going. And to be carried and buoyed along by their apparent energy and resourcefulness. And so it is with the communion of saints, when from time to time we feel like we've been running and we're running on empty, we're, we're tired, we're worn out, tempted to despair, to have others around us who can say, hey, how you're feeling now, how things appear now is not how finally they will be. They're not ultimately how they'll be. Where do I get this idea of someone coming alongside this psalmist? Again, look at the italics under the title. Uh, this psalms of Korah, directed music, a masculine, of Heman the Israelite. Heman the Israelite, who was, uh, I, I gather the commentators tell me, one of the choir directors at this time. Just turn over the page to Psalm 89. Look under the title there. A masculine of Ethan the Israelite. And the commentators believe that Heman and Ethan were brothers. They were sons of the same father. Heman the Israelite and Ethan the Israelite. And let's see what Ethan writes. Look at verse 1 of his psalm. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. 
With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You've said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. What's the picture we see here? We see Heman struggling, wrestling. It's such a long journey. I just want to stop. I just want to collapse. I can't go on. And his brother drawing drawing alongside and giving him a different perspective. I know how it feels, brother, but keep running. Keep running. Look, let me show you the faithfulness of our God. Let me remind you of his covenant. Let me give you a picture and insight into how it will end. The communion of saints allows us to hear the laments of brothers and sisters in distress, but allows brothers and sisters in distress to be encouraged and carried along by those who are in a position to see where we are and where we're heading more clearly. This psalm, Psalm 88, should not be read in isolation. There are 150 other psalms. So Psalm 139, for example, we had this preached earlier on. Rollo preached uh, from that psalm. But verse 12, even the darkness is not darkness to you. You see the very final line, verse 18 of verse 88. Darkness is my closest friend. But if we take other psalms and put them alongside Psalm 88, we see that from God's perspective, This is in no way taking away the perspective of the psalmist. Darkness, his closest friend. But as we put Psalm 88 around the communion of psalms, we see that from God's perspective, darkness is not darkness to him. For darkness becomes light. And as we gather as fellowship, a fellowship of Christian believers... Uh, either gathering here in this hall and chit-chatting over coffee, or perhaps more realistically as we meet together midweek in our different home groups and over time we get to know one another and share in each other's lives. There's an opportunity for us to unite around the person of Christ and to see him as the ultimate interpreter of Scripture and of life and of all that has gone before, all that currently is and all that lies ahead. Jesus Christ, the word become flesh, John tells us in chapter 1 and verse 5. The light who came into a dark world and the darkness could not overcome it. So it's with courage that we embrace psalms of lament. We stand with brothers and sisters for whom these psalms resonate heavily. We persist in prayer and we encourage them to persist because God alone is the ultimate author of our salvation. And we know and we encourage one another that the present order of things is not the ultimate order of things. And we allow the whole counsel of Scripture, the whole wisdom of the Bible to inform and educate and shape and encourage until one day As the book of Revelation tells us, there's a new heaven and a new earth. And the old order passes away. And behold, new heaven, new earth has come.
we can be real in our lament right now as we hold on to the hope of that future. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just